Okay, if you would please open your copy of the Word of God to Isaiah chapter 9. With every single passing day, the day of our salvation is drawing closer. The day when the kingdom of heaven will finally be established upon the earth. When all sin and suffering, all sorrow will cease. Jesus Christ will reign in perfect righteousness and peace. We will finally look upon the face of the beloved Son of God. That day is coming closer. It is nearer to us, as Paul would say, than when we first believed. In the meantime, as we wait for that great day to arrive, every single one of us knows that Christians are not spared the sorrows of this age. It is definitely true. We see it in Scripture and we see it in our own lives that every single one of God's people will have the fiery trial that comes upon them to test them, to use the words of Peter. There are going to be seasons short and seasons long when the darkness of this age is more apparent to us than the light of that age to come. But as we look forward to the day of our salvation, are we ever without hope? So my longing as the pastor of this church is that every single one of you not only have hope in the Lord, but be those people, really the few, who rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That you obey that command. Not only the command to believe in Christ and hope in His name, but to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Even if it's through tears and a lot of tears, let us rejoice in the hope of God's glory. I'm coming back to Isaiah chapter 9, not only because it's Christmas time and this passage promises the incarnation of the Messiah, but because it's one of my favorite. I think this is the third time that I've preached Isaiah chapter 9 here at All's Chapel. It was four years ago, 2012, when we took five weeks to work through Isaiah 7, verse 1 to 9, verse 7, because I don't know of a passage in the Bible that makes me rejoice in the hope of the glory of God and rejoice in Jesus more than this one does. And I don't know that there's a passage either that makes me realize again how futile it is to hope in anything but the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to consider again Isaiah 9 verses 1 to 7 with you uh, meditatively and prayerfully as well. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we are seeking your help today because we don't, we don't want any other help. We don't want to settle for anything less than you. You are our hope. You are the faithful God. You are our Father. You are our refuge. You are our Savior. It's in You that we have our righteousness. It's in You that we live. It's in You that we live and move and have our being, our very breath. And it's in You that we have eternal life. So now we come to You for help again. And we rest assured in Your promise that you are faithful according to your grace and mercy in Christ to hear and to answer our prayer for help today. 
I pray, Father, that you would put the promise of your Son deep into every heart. So, Father, that it takes over our hearts. It transforms our perspective. It fixes our eyes on Jesus. And I pray that you would not let us put our eyes on any other claim to light in this world. May you alone have our hope and you alone have our praise. In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen. 700 years before the birth of Jesus, there was a king on the throne of Judah who would rather appeal to the dead for his help and his counsel than look to the Lord of heaven and earth. Ahaz is his name. And he can't stand the thought of trusting in God. Even when a sign of deliverance is offered to him, he refuses all help from God. The Bible says about him that he made metal images for the Baals and made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his sons as an offering. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. The only God that Ahaz would not seek is the one true God. So it was during a national crisis, Ahaz is reigning on the the throne of the southern kingdom of Judah at this time. And it's during a national crisis when Judah is being threatened by the kingdoms of Israel and Syria to its north that the prophet Isaiah comes to him and offers him a word from the Lord. He says to him, ask for a sign and God will give it to you, a sign of the deliverance of Judah. Now, after spending all of his life seeking after every small g God under the face of the, under the sun and every name in the pantheon of gods, would now Ahaz look to the Lord? Would he listen to a word from the Lord? This is his response. I will not ask, he says in Isaiah 7 verse 12, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now you see through him, right? I know we haven't, we haven't been studying his life. I've just given you a quick minute summary of what kind of person he is. But you, you smell it, right? This guy is absolutely full of it. I mean, he is the fullest, really. He is, he is trying to, um, cloak his evil heart in this religious garb as, like, that's too, I'm too low for that. I'm too low to seek a sign from the Lord. I won't put him to the test. But truth be told, this man is nothing but a little puke who is in league with the devil and long before this had happily sold his soul so that he could have 16 years on the throne of Judah to gut the nation of true worship. That's who this individual is. And so as he is being threatened and he prefers to trust not in the God of Israel, but in the Assyrian Empire to his northeast, God's response to his rejection is to say that Assyria is going to come for him too. Assyria, whom he is in league with, will turn on him. 
Now, in contrast to Ahaz, whom you can barely call a man. He is one biologically, but that's about it. Is Isaiah the prophet. And every true child of God stands with Isaiah. Because Isaiah's testimony in the next chapter, Isaiah 8, is this. I will hope in the Lord. I will wait for Him. Is that your confession? That you, no matter what anyone else does, you are going to hope in the Lord. I want to encourage you in the the strongest terms to simply turn down all of the other offerings from the world of of spiritual help, of life. All of the, the promises. Here is light. Here is life. Here is how you can advance. Here is fullness of life for you. Here is salvation. When it comes from the world, simply turn it down and trust in the Lord alone. Because He alone is light and life for every soul. Let's read the last few verses together, if you would, uh, with me. Isaiah chapter 8, beginning in verse 19. The last few verses of that chapter, okay? This is what Isaiah says to everyone who will put their hope anywhere but the Lord. He says, And when they say to you, Inquire of the mediums, and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living to the teaching and to the testimony? If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land. This is their judgment now. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Last week, when we were going over the last several verses of Luke chapter 17, Jesus was describing for us in very strong terms, what the unbelieving world is like right unto the very end, even as judgment falls from heaven. And that's what Isaiah is doing as well. When all provisions have run out and all pleasures are dried up on the earth and judgment is fallen, what will the unbelieving world do then? Look at what Isaiah says at the end of this passage. He says they will look upward and they will look downward. They will look down upon the earth and in the earth they will place still all of their hope. And they will only look to heaven to place all of the blame for their hope not being fulfilled. They will put all their hope in the earth But when the earth comes up empty, the dying earth, they will place all the blame for it, not upon the world in which they trusted, but they will place the blame at the gate of heaven. And this will be the last thing that those who do not hope in the Lord will do upon the earth. This is the end of them. 
And this would be the end of Israel too. Except, God had made a promise long, long ago, a covenant with their fathers that Israel would be His people and He would be their God. And if there is one thing that we know about God, it is that when He makes a promise, He delivers. And so He will save His people. And there will be an Israel who lives. It's an Israel that is not simply made up of those who are Jews merely outwardly, but those who are Jews inwardly. Not simply of those circumcised in skin, as Paul says in Romans chapter 2, but of those who are circumcised in the heart and by the Spirit, not by the letter of the law. And so it's not simply children of flesh, but much more those who are the children of promise. This is the Israel that God will save. So God speaks to them in chapter 9. And everything changes in chapter 9. It is the, it's, it's the absolute worst at the end of chapter 8. It's the end of all things. But in chapter 9, there is a word of hope as God speaks to this specific region of Israel in the north called Galilee. 700 years before this, before the debacle of Ahaz, there were two tribes that were given this allotment of land to the west of the Jordan River, a ways east inland from the Mediterranean Sea. It was eventually known simply by that sea that bordered them. It was the region of Galilee. And here was the thing about Galilee, the thing that made it a dangerous place to live. You see, Israel had the Mediterranean Sea on its west, that vast sea on its western border. And on its eastern border was the Jordan River. To its south, there was this vast wilderness. So invading foreign empires, if they were to attack the nation in full stride, they would come down through the north the first of the people who were subject to the attack of the enemy were those in the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, this region known as Galilee. And so they would, if they were going to hit the land full stride, Galilee would be their first victims. And it was the citizens of Galilee that were subject to every terror under the sun. And those armies would do with the Galilean people whatever they willed to do. So now God speaks to them. And the word that He gives, again, it's not a word of judgment. It's hope. And it's not a little glimmer of hope. What God gives to them in these first several verses is eye-popping, jaw-dropping, breathtaking promise. Let's read the first two verses again. But there will be no gloom for her her who was in anguish. I just have to read 22 again because I want you to hear what a sudden change this is. They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, 
the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. All they had known for centuries was gloom and contempt. But Isaiah says in the latter time, glory will drive out the gloom and drive out the contempt. And notice how Isaiah phrases all of this. Every part of Scripture is inspired, even down to the tenses of the verbs, okay? Isaiah writes of all of this like he's looking back on it. Even though all of the the fulfillment of this is 700 years down the road from his day, he writes of it as though he is looking back. It's this prophetic perspective. There's something that we need to take to heart about this. This is how sure the word of the Lord is. The scriptures cannot be broken. God's promises are unbreakable. His word is absolutely immovable. So immovable, in fact, that anything that anyone does to attempt to stop God's promise from fulfillment or even slow it down actually falls into God's design and serves His cause. That's how great our God is. That's how certain His Word is. And that's why you should put all of your hope in Him and in nothing else. And it should instill such confidence in you. Since we have already seen much of what we're going to read come to pass, that you not only hope in the Lord, but that you rejoice in the hope that you have in Him. That is, even in grief and even in tears, it changes your perspective right down to affecting your mood. I'm not saying that grief just goes, that we suffer and we're like, eh, it's nothing, because it's not nothing. And as I said before, there are some seasons where the darkness is more apparent to us even than the light of God. But we must be the people who rejoice in hope because nothing can break God's Word. Nothing can even slow God's Word. And all opposition will actually serve to further His plan along. What God is there like our God? What Word is like His Word? Can you trust anything, anyone, like you can our God? We are so... Betty used the word in Sunday school this morning, so I can use it from behind the pulpit. Stupid. Sometimes she said stupid in Sunday school. You have to ask her why. Um, She was talking about us and our sin. We worry and we fret over a future that we can't see. You know, where am I going to be a year from now if things continue as they have been going? Where am I going to be? We fret and we worry over a future that we can't see. But is the Lord blind to tomorrow? Does He go into tomorrow blind, just kind of feeling, stumbling His way? He is the eternal God. Listen listen to me. This might be one of those uh, 
headache-causing thoughts. But think about this. He is the God who inhabits eternity. He comes into time, but truly He exists above and over time. Time and space, all of it, are at His beck and call. He governs it because He made it. He made tomorrow. He is already there in tomorrow. So what do the people of God need to fear when we can't see what there is tomorrow? He is already there. And when you walk through, you will walk into it with a full supply of the grace of God that will see you through whatever. Even if tomorrow is the day of your death, God will give to you a supply of grace that will see you through. This is our God. And we have nothing to fear. So what does this day of light mean for us? It means a whole lot of joy. Let's look at verse 3. Isaiah, he can see the coming day. And this is what he proclaims. It's the word of the Lord. He says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. There is great joy coming for you and for me on the day of salvation. It's for all who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for this salvation. It's the day of great joy. And what we, what we are reaping is not the reward of what we have done. We are reaping the reward of what God has done. We are reaping the harvest of what He has sown. And we are reaping the spoils of the war that he has fought. So there is great joy. Now notice, in verses 4, 5, and 6, each verse begins with the word for. So Isaiah is going to spell out the reasons for all of the rejoicing that is coming to the people of God. Verse 4. Why is there all this, why all this joy, Isaiah? For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken. As on the day of Midian. If you remember Gideon and his victory over the Midianites back in Judges. That's what's being alluded to there. Joy is going to abound on that day because every form of oppression against the people of God will be broken. You know there are Christians... As far as I understand, at this very moment, right now, who are huddled in the bombed out buildings of Aleppo, Syria. We think that we are oppressed. There are mass grave sites of Christians all over the Middle East. There are crucifixion sites for Christians, young and old. Sites that are not very old themselves. But there will be no more burial sites on the day of salvation for the people of God. There will be no more crucifixion sites. Every device that has ever been raised against God's people will be broken. 
all oppression will be done. Not only the physical kind, but the spiritual kind. Temptation will be done for on that day. And every accusation that the accuser of the brothers has ever raised against us, that he, down to the very last one, that he constantly holds over your head, that too will be broken. Every device, physical and spiritual, that was ever used to threaten us or oppress us will be broken. Every device used to break us, which cannot break us, will be broken on that day. And so we will rejoice. Why? Because we are going to be free. Verse 5, Isaiah, tell us why is there so much joy for every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. When something has no more use at all, I mean, you can't use it for any good whatsoever. Maybe there is one use less left if it's flammable. It's fuel for the fire. And everything that was put on for war will be used as fuel for the fire. Think about these two verses, five, uh, four and five right here. What these promises would mean to our persecuted brothers and sisters all over the world. They mean a lot to us. How much more to those who are fleeing for their lives, who don't know if they're going to see the sun come up tomorrow. I would, I'd also submit to you that not only are we laying down um, every physical weapon and device of war, but everything that we are commanded today to put on as spiritual armor will also be put down on that day. What does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 6? He says, above all, in all circumstances, put on the shield of faith because it is used to quench the the flaming darts of the evil one. But when faith is turned to sight, what do you do with the shield of faith? And when there are no flaming darts of temptation or accusation, what do you need the shield for? And when the evil one who throws them at us today is no more, there's no more use even for the shield of faith. It all will be put down because there will be no enemy left. And all of these things that we're talking about are going to come to pass on the last day because so much of the promise that we are reading of has already come to fulfillment. So look at verse 6. This is our great joy. This is what we have already seen. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Twice during my life I have heard it said, a baby girl has been born to Michael and Cherie Reynolds. And twice during my life I have heard it said, a baby boy has been born to Michael and Cherie Reynolds. And Lord willing, no more will it be said. Of Michael and Cherie Reynolds, a baby has been born to them. But this is the way you talk about the, the family of the baby. You know, a, a girl, a boy has been born to them. And those words aren't said to anyone but the family of the baby. So what is going on in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6? 
where it says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The Lord's promise is so much more. And think of the angel appearing to the shepherds before that great chorus breaks out. What does the angel say? For unto you is born this day. I wonder if there were any confused looks going on between the shepherds. I didn't know that your wife was expecting. No, the angel is speaking to all of them. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He is born to all who hope in His name, who receive Him, who believe in His name. And what is His name? His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. I love this name especially because of how it answers the idiot Ahaz who would not have the counsel of God, who would rather die than hear the counsel from God. But the one who is born to us is the wonderful counselor whose word is true, whose revelation leads us into light, who guides us in the way of peace, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is the wonderful counselor. Where else can we go? Like Peter said, Remember when the, the, the people in Galilee left Jesus in droves after he gave them a hard word, even though the day before he had fed them 5,000 plus, five loaves of bread and two fish? And he gave them a hard teaching in applying that. And they left in mass. And Jesus turned to his disciples and he said to them, will you go away also? And Peter had an answer speaking on their behalf. Where else will we go? Could we go? You have the words of eternal life. You and you alone. There's a lot of claim out there. Whether you're talking about psychologists, pop culture, the political pundits, whoever. I mean, they're all claiming light. They're all claiming expertise, salvation a fuller life, whatever. But it's in God alone that we have the one word that is reliable. It's the one word of salvation. We find it in Him. Jesus Christ is the wonderful Counselor. Why all of this joy? Because the Son who is born to us is in fact the mighty God. I... I can't speak absolutely 100%, but I don't know of another Old Testament Scripture looking forward to Jesus that says like this very explicitly that this Messiah figure who is coming is not merely human. Most of the Old Testament promises don't get that clear. But the child born to us who will take the throne of David, the coming Christ, is in fact the mighty God. And when He comes in frail human flesh, I mean, He lies there as helplessly and vulnerably as Lorelai back there. He is yet God. Humanly speaking, He can't understand a single word that Mary, His mother, speaks to Him to soothe Him. Humanly speaking. 
but in His divine power as the mighty God, He sustains the very speech that she gives at one and the same time. This is who Jesus is. All of the fullness of God dwells in Him. All of God's works are His works. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him, all things hold together. And it's through Him that God reconciles to Himself all things. He is the mighty God. So listen. I mean, what is, what is Ahaz? What are the people of Judah doing, thinking, not trusting in God? It, it would be like Peter. Who's, remember when Peter is walking across the water to Jesus. He, he says, if it's you, call me out of the boat. So he says, come. And Peter gets out and he begins to walk on the water to Jesus. He takes his eyes off Jesus for a moment and his thought and he sinks beneath the waves. Jesus reaches down for him as Peter calls out, Lord, save me. It would be Ahaz's trust in Assyria our trust in anything else but God, would be like Peter trying to hold on to the water and pull himself up by the water, trying to grasp onto the water instead of the arm that is reaching down to him. When we are feeling like we're drowning in the trouble of this age, grasp onto the arm of the Lord. Grasp onto Christ. If you trust in anything else, it's just like trying to grasp the very water that you're drowning in. What is His name? He is the mighty God and He is everlasting Father. I realize this one can be a little confusing. It is not saying that God the Son is God the Father. God the Son is not God the Father. But it is saying to us that though He is laid in a manger, He yet remains the protector and the provider of His people and the one who accomplishes with a fatherly heart for His people all of the fatherly good will of God. That's what it's saying to us. And it says, I want to just point this out again, everlasting Father. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever He had formed the earth and the world, Psalm 90, He is God. He is everlasting. Again, when we talk about worrying about tomorrow, it seems so foolish when this One who calls us to Himself and says, come to Me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is the everlasting Father. If we cannot rest in Him, but look to rest in someone else or something else, how foolish is that? There's only one whom we can trust. Why do the people rejoice? Because His name is Prince of Peace. When He comes, He comes to make war. He is going to conquer. He will break the nations with a rod of iron. But He is going to make war on war and going to conquer it. And all striving, all conflict in every shape and form is going to cease so that in His kingdom there is not going to be a thing in all of creation that is going to be at odds with my heart and yours. 
There's not going to be anything in your heart that is going to be in conflict or at odds with anything within the realm that he rules because he is the prince of peace. That's why we should rejoice in the coming day. There's not going to be any more discord, no dissonance, but perfect harmony between all things in his realm. And now verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Look down at these words as I speak because I want you to get something. Look, look at what Isaiah says. He will establish his kingdom. He will then uphold his kingdom, and he will then further increase his kingdom forevermore to no end. Establish, sustain, and further it. I don't know exactly how you explain that, but taking the Lord simply at his word, I believe that the coming kingdom will grow in its dimensions for all time. Perhaps we may find something corresponding to that in our universe, which continues to expand. The kingdom of Christ will grow in its dimensions and will grow in its delights for the people of God, for all who hope in His name. Now, this is obviously... Like I said before, this is eye-popping, jaw-dropping, breathtaking promise from God. Do you have doubts about all of this being fulfilled? I know sometimes we're so worn down by what we see and what we hear that we feel like this is all that there is. And doubts cross our minds concerning God's promise. But do you doubt that God will bring this to pass? That He will do it? Look at what it says at the end of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The promise is given. The promise is written. And as Jesus says in John 5, the Scriptures cannot be broken. The zeal of God will perform this. The divine power and all the divine passion is poured into the fulfillment of this promise. God will do it. If you cannot rest assured in this, you cannot rest assured in anything. And I think that our confidence and our joy should grow. I mean, as as hopeful as the people of Isaiah's day should have been because of this promise. We have less reason for doubt and we have more reason for joy than they did because we have seen so much of this already come to pass. Because 2,000 years ago, just east a little bit from the shores of the Mediterranean, in the north of that little country called Israel, in Galilee, in a little nothing village of Nazareth, an angel came down from heaven to a virgin girl by the name of Mary and made this promise. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name 
Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Don't you trust in him? Why would you put your faith for salvation in anything but him? We are nearer to this great salvation than when we first believed. So I am I'm appealing to you today and I'm praying for you today that not only will you hope in his name, but you will from the heart rejoice in that hope even in sorrow, even through many tears, let us rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We can trust his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word that you have spoken to us, that a child will be born to us and a son will be given. Father, we are beyond thankful that we have already seen that day come to pass. Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, was born here on this earth in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. We know that the work that you gave him to do for us and our salvation, he fulfilled. He proclaimed from his cross, It is finished. On the third day of his burial, just as you promised, you raised him triumphant over the grave. He ascended into glory. He is there enthroned, we believe. And with all of our hearts, we fully expect for Jesus to come again, just as you have said. You have not broken a promise yet. You cannot break a promise. All will be fulfilled. So I pray, Father, that in every heart, not only would there be hope in you, but there would be rejoicing in that hope. Father, may you be pleased by the faith response of your people. And I pray, Father, for any who are suffering, who are wondering, confused, doubtful. I pray, Father, that their doubts would be wiped away and all faith would be in Christ. And I thank you, Father, for your mercy for the doubting. I thank you, Father, that you pour out your grace. Oh, It's only on sinners. And we are all sinners. So we look to you and we hope in you. In Jesus' name, amen.